You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We should dive into the book of Acts. So again, we're in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 38 through 47 this morning. If you're, if you're new with us or even if you're joining us online for the first time and and you're not familiar with how we roll here. We and we just when we what we do for our preaching series is we pick a book, we start with the first verse, and we work through it verse by verse until we get through it. And our hope is that God would just speak through His Word as we come to understand the uh, the kind of the narrative of the story, uh, what the author is saying in that book, and we try to really dive into the the themes and and just kind of exposit the truth of those scriptures as we move through it. God has been good to us in that over the years, and we are in the book of Acts, and we'll probably be there for about the next uh, little over a year um, with a few breaks here and there uh, for holidays and stuff over the summer as we go into uh, Psalms. I think we're in Psalms 41 through 50 this year, which would be pretty cool over the summer. Looking forward to that. Um, so that's where we're at. We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. Uh, you can just follow along with me in your Bibles. You don't have to read out loud because it, it's a significant chunk of text. Um, if you're here with us and you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, there's a black hardcover Bible under the seat that you're sitting on, under the seat in front of you. Uh, should be like uh, page 856 or so uh, would be where we're at in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one as our gift to you. I want to say thanks to the members that stepped up and bought those for that very reason. So Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. I want to pray over God's word and then we'll dive in. So uh, join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we know that your word uh, is perfect, and it's true, and it never changes, and it has a purpose to accomplish. Father, we trust that uh, you would come, and we ask that you would come, and that you would speak through your word. Uh, Lord, speak through me as I preach. Pray, Father, that you would take the meditations of my heart, and that you would purify them, that you would take the words of my mouth, and you would sanctify them. Lord, that you would use both to bring honor to your name, that you would help me to magnify the name of Jesus. Uh, Lord, that you would just come and show up in an awesome and powerful way. God, that you would move our hearts, stir our hearts to see how awesome, powerful of a God you are. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Hey, whenever I read this passage, been been studying the book of Acts Ever since I became a believer, uh, June of 2000, so you know, almost 23 years ago for me, uh, sometimes feels like it was yesterday. Uh, I remember preaching through the book of Acts in the first years we began to plant this church 10 and a half years ago. Um, whenever I come to this passage, I'm, I'm absolutely awestruck by the awesomeness, and those two words are intentional, right? I'm awestruck by the awesomeness of the early church. When you, when you look at uh, Luke's description of the early church here, it's, it's awesome. Uh, but, but not only that, I would say that, that I am struck by the awesomeness of God as he plants the early church. As that early church sprouts up 
And I would say, uh, you know, within a yard of hell, because that's where I believe the church is to live. Would you think about the things that you might call awesome? Or, or the uh, experiences that you've had in your life that you would call awesome? I remember the first time that I, um, I was very young, and my mom used to drop me off at a church midweek uh, for, for a youth group. It was more like a babysitter for her. And, uh, and it was like a youth group for, for boys, and uh, it was kind of like uh, Boy Scouts meets Jesus, kind of on steroids type thing. And they, they uh, took us out to this little cliff side, and they had these ropes, and they were like, we're going to repel down the side of this cliff. And I was like, are you nuts? I was like, 100 feet down, you could die. I just remember that, that kind of really uncomfortable, fearful, awesome feeling inside. Um... Many of you know, um, I, along with a, a small group of men and women, we started a motorcycle ministry uh, over the last couple of years. And our aim there is to reach out to the outlaw bikers in the state. Uh, not a lot of ministries that, that walk into some of the places that we believe God has called us to. Um, but just for the sake of conversation about things that are awesome, you, know where, you might know where I need to go on this. Um, this kind of a ministry requires that you uh, own and ride a motorcycle, right? That uh, kind of makes sense if you're going to be kind of part of that kind of, of a ministry. And the motorcycle that I ride has the smallest of Harley-Davidson motors in it. And you're like, why are we getting a, uh, a lecture about, well, oh, I'll tell you. It's got the smallest of Harley-Davidson motors, motors in it. It's an 88 cubic inch motor. Um, my dream motor is the largest, har, the largest of Harley-Davidson motors. It's called the 131 uh, it has an awful lot of power in it, a big bike. Uh, and you, you're like, okay, Joe, we get it. Stop with the lecture, get back to it. Um, it's not just that I want the fastest bike on the face of the planet, although you know, faster bikes are a lot of fun, I think. Not just that. Actually, in that area of ministry, there is actually a respect factor that is earned. Um, and, they, and they would say that in that culture, respect is something that gets earned. Um, it's also something that's given freely, but it's earned. And so respect is kind of earned in that community if you ride a, a, a large motored bike uh, really well, if you can kind of ride it like you stole it. You've probably heard that phrase before. And so there, it's a little bit more than just wearing the fastest bike. There, if you get some respect in that community, it gives you an opportunity for us, gives an opportunity to have conversations and hopefully share the gospel. So there is actually a little bit of a sanctified reason for it. Um, for the record, my wife says the first Monday of 2025 is the day I get that bike, so... We're just, you know, some accountability. Um, I think she slipped is probably what happened, but uh, it is the way it is. I get the same sense of awe, though. I mean, I just saw one of those bikes last night, and I was like, I was sweating. Okay, it was like, oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. I get the same sense of awe, though, whenever uh, I see a 30-ounce steak on the, on the menu. Okay, it's like, oh, awesome. Um, Four-by-four lifted truck with loud exhaust rolling down the street. Awesome. Where's Andrew at? Andrew loves those things too. They're awesome to me. Uh, or a uh, 1996 Dodge Charger. That's the Dukes of Hazard car, if you didn't know. That's an awesome car. Uh, 1977 Firebird, right? That was the, the car that was in Smoking the Bandit. So that's another time when I'm like, I'm awed. And if somebody were like, hey, you want to drive that? I'd be a little afraid too, okay? Because it's like, whoa, that's a, that's a special car. There would be a, a weird mixture of like uncomfortable and excited and a little bit afraid um, whenever it comes to those kinds of things. And really, at the end of the day, it's true. I'm really just a typical dude, I guess. Um, I, I get awed by typical dude stuff. So to, so to you know, shift the gears all the way over the other way, Valentine's Day is in a couple of days. That's the girls' holiday is what I hear. I don't know if that's true. That's just what I hear. I've heard, I've heard people like laying these things out. And Valentine's Day, and it's just a few days away. Many of you might remember um, that feeling, the butterflies you got, you know, in your stomach when you first met uh, your significant other, your spouse, or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend. Um, or if you're married, like the day that you saw them walking down the aisle on your wedding day. You might remember that day. It was a day where you felt a little bit uncomfortable, right? You're all dressed up and you don't know what the rest of your life is going to look like now. You're maybe a little bit afraid, but you're also really excited. You've got all those same emotions. They call it butterflies in the stomach, right? Um, I remember that day uh, for Christy and I. 
and uh, I'll never forget the day. I'll, I remember the first day I met her, and I'll never forget those days. Uh, on the other hand, for those of you who are single, right, in the room, um, you may, uh, in your mind, kind of dream um, about a day like that, or you might have that sense of excitement and, and fear and wonder and awe over the prospect that maybe God's called you to be single, right? You might feel these things on either side of the road there. So that there are many things that can bring us a sense of awe, right? Now that's my whole point. What, what is it, what things have you experienced that have brought you that sense of awe? It's a little bit, it's a mixture of fear. It's a mixture of being a little bit uncomfortable. And it's also a mixture of being really excited. It's hard to contain. I think of, uh, I mentioned this a few weeks back, 4th of July fireworks at Dave Zock's place. Awesome. I think about the Grand Canyon, which I've never been to, um, but I've heard that it's absolutely awesome. The Rocky Mountains I have been to, and I don't know about you, but whenever we get close to the Rocky Mountains and we're traveling there, I do get that sense of, oh, they're about to, I'm looking at them, I'm waiting to see them like pop up over the horizon, right? I'm that excited about the Rocky Mountains. Same is true with the Black Hills. We ride our bikes out there every year for our family vacation. And as we're coming up over hills, I'm just looking for those Black Hills to just lay out in front of me because it gives you that awesome feeling, right? Ever stand on the beach and look out over the vastness of the ocean? Those are moments when you feel it's kind of a, it's a frightening, exciting but oddly uncomfortable, like that ocean is massive. And if I were to step in, I could get swallowed up for all of eternity, right? You know that that ocean just goes on forever. The feeling of awesomeness. And it's that kind of a feeling that I get when I read and when I study and think about this portion of the book of Acts. Because the God we serve is absolutely awesome. And really what's happening is, is he is on full display as the church is being planted here in this text. I want you to look with me at some of the really awesome things that Luke tells us about the early church in the text that we just read. The first thing I notice is this. 3,000 people get saved, okay? 3,000 people get saved. Think about that with me. When I think about 3,000 people getting saved because of a single sermon being preached, Peter just preached a a knockdown, drag-out sermon, and 3,000 people get saved because of that one single sermon. When, when I think about that, I, mean, I get a sense of fear, a sense of being a little bit uncomfortable. What would we do with 3,000 people today if, if they just got saved from, like, this sermon? How would we disciple them? How would we care for them? How would we even baptize them, as cold as it is outside? You know, polar plunge, I guess. It must have been an awesome day, though. You might remember again, um, Peter has just preached his heart out, right? Verses 14 through 37, we looked at it last week. Here's some of the highlights from that. You might remember that the day of Pentecost has just happened. The disciples have been waiting in the upper room. Suddenly the Holy Spirit comes, a sound of rushing wind. You got tons of fire on the head. Now they're just babbling in unknown languages. And pretty soon you realize all of the nations to the ends of the earth are represented in that town of Jerusalem that day. And they are hearing the gospel in their own language. That's what's taking place. It's like the first kind of tangible fulfillment of the Great Commission when Jesus says, hey, go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them everything I've taught you. Acts 1.8, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes so you can be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Witnessing to something you've seen and experienced, something you know. You can't witness to things you don't know. If an accident happens on the other side of town right now and you and I are all sitting here and the cops show up and they're like, yo, did you witness that accident? The answer is, no, I didn't, so I can't tell you anything about it. The funny thing is, sometimes I think in Christianity, we want to try to talk about somebody that we really don't know. We can't witness the presence of an almighty God in our lives because we have given in to a cheap substitute of Christianity, which is boiled down to maybe one gathering a week, maybe two gatherings a month with God's people. 
But how can we proclaim the excellencies of Him who saved us if that's our only experience? You can't proclaim and testify to somebody you don't know. And here in that sermon in verses 14 through 37, you might remember as we came down to the end of actually the week before when everybody that was rejecting what the disciples were saying, they're just like, nah, they're just drunk. And so Peter starts out there in that sermon, he refutes the notion that they're drunk in the early morning hours. He then turns and preaches Jesus. He's, he was crucified, he's risen, he's returning. He does that all from the book of Joel, um, which gives us the importance of studying the Old Testament, especially for us today with the New Testament in mind, with Jesus in mind. He then confronts some people in his audience from Psalms 116 and 110, and he confronts them for their unlawful murder of Jesus, right? He's like, hey, you, you murdered Jesus, which is a totally transformed dude from who we saw just 50 days ago when he uh, cursed Jesus and denied him three times. Peter has been radically transformed. He's now calling out people in his audience for the unlawful murder of Jesus, who, by the way, resurrected. He's alive, yo, right? And we, we talked last week about how if you're in the audience and you thought you had gotten Jesus, he's dead now, we crucified him. And then Peter's like, yeah, you did crucify him, and he's alive, and by the way, he's coming back. That puts you in a place where you really have to think about, hmm, what side of this thing do I want to be on? Because Peter says, hey, he ascended into heaven, he's ruling over all creation, the nations have become his footstool and he is returning not only to save those who have trusted in him but he's also coming back to vanquish those who were his enemies so the response of the crowd is what we ended with last week the response of the crowd upon hearing that they're like hey uh peter i'm sweating now what do we do now that's where we ended the best question anyone could ask after hearing a sermon right and Peter's response is this. His answer to their question is the text we're studying today. Here's his answer. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he basically says, hey, yo, if you do this, if you repent and if you become baptized and you trust in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this is what will happen. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit will be given upon, to you. So if you catch this, when, when, you're, when you're looking at this and you're studying it, you have to understand that repentance here simply means to change your mind. Now, all throughout Greek language, and the New Testament was, was written in the Greek mostly, right? Uh, all throughout the Greek language, there are three different words in the Greek that, that can be interpreted as repent. One of those is what's used here, and it simply means change your mind. Another way, another word that is often used for repent is one that says, hey, um, you should feel really bad for what you did. Kind of a guilt sense to it. It should, it should kind of cut you to the heart. It's a sense of being uh, broken over your sin. So that's a second use of a word that would be translated repent. And then the third use, another word would be to turn. That's the common um, um, interpretation of repentance that we hear is to turn away from your sin, to do a U-turn on the road of life. And honestly, that U-turn has to be done over and over and over again, right? It's not just a one-time thing. The moment that you pray the sinner's prayer and get your fire insurance card to keep you out of hell, it's not just that moment. It's also, it, it is a journey, repentance is. It's a lifestyle that must continue to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, is the way John the Baptist would have put it. But here, repentance simply means to change your mind. Think about it. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, y'all thought Jesus was somebody that he wasn't, so I'm calling you to repent. Change your mind about Jesus. And today, it's popular to make up all sorts of weird stories about who Jesus was. You see it all over the TV, right? The History Channel um, and many others, Discovery Channel, will try to tell you all sorts of things about Jesus they either A, flat out aren't true, or B, they're actually true, and if you took their suppositions about God, about Jesus, to their logical end, it would lead you right to who Jesus is. He's saying, hey, y'all, you need to change your mind about Jesus. As the gift of the Holy Spirit gives you ability. Uh, in the original language, there is a sense here. It's not like if, 
if you do one thing, you get the other. It's almost a simultaneous thing. At the moment of salvation, at the moment that you change your mind about Jesus, what's happening is God, by the power of his spirit, is giving you a brand new heart. He's taking out your old heart of stone, the heart that was hardened against him for so long, and he's giving you an actual fleshly beating heart that will now beat after God and trust in God. This is a, this is a work of grace on God's part. God didn't have to do that. What God could have done was annihilated you and I. He has the right to as a righteous judge and king. But there cannot, there cannot be any legitimate salvation without repentance. That's the truth. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. Because repentance is what goes right along with the moment of salvation and continues long after it producing fruit. Again, here in this context, namely, changing your mind about Jesus by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the gift. The problem in many of our Pentecostal circles, and as I've said, many of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, is that we don't focus on the gift who is the Holy Spirit. We focus on the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. That's the problem. We elevate the gift over the giver. Now, in reference to the Holy Spirit, here's what Peter says, right? He says that this gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38... He says, this gift of the Holy Spirit is for everyone, not just for a select few. It's for everyone, both young and old, whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. So the Lord is the one who does the calling. He's the one speaking to you and saying, hey, you need to come to me. Come here. It's the Spirit that enables you to pick up the phone and go, I'm here, Lord. Because without the Spirit of God giving you that ability, you would never pick up the phone because you're stuck, you're dead in your transgressions and sins, according to Ephesians. So that's why it's an act of grace in this moment that when, when, when he says, hey, everybody whom the Lord our God calls to himself by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ for salvation, and he says salvation from this crooked generation, and I would, I would boil that out to for every generation to come because every generation is increasingly crooked. Look at your friends that you grew up with. Look at the school systems. Look at the economy. Look at politics. Look at It's crooked. Right? We know it's a crooked, jacked-up world we live in. Now, in response, in response, if you look at verse 41, in response to Peter's call to trust in Jesus for salvation, what does Luke tell us happens? He tells us that those who received his word were baptized. This is very key. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You have to be of a certain age to receive a word as truth. Agreed? Like, we know that, like, kids are like one, two, three. They have no clue. Babies. They don't comprehend the message of the gospel. They don't comprehend what it is to sin. Yet, I would say babies within the moments of of birth that prove that they're sinners, right? Don't they? And they're cute. But prove that they're sinners. The sins infected all of us because of Adam. It's not like you get out of the womb and you do a sin and now you're a sinner. It's the moment you were conceived, you are sinful. David makes this clear in Psalm 51. When he repents for his sin against Bathsheba, what does he say? He says, I think, I think he says, in transgression I was conceived. Now, you might use the other word, um, but in sin I was conceived. He's saying, from the moment of conception, I was a sinful person. Sin has infected the entire loaf, right? The entire human race. But only those who received his word could understand it were then baptized. They were added to that day 3,000 souls. So it, you could say this. When you're looking at this, you'd have to say that both repentance and salvation are intrinsically tied to baptism. They go hand in hand. They're together. You, you don't have them without the other in, in the story of Scripture. There's always repentance. As salvation is taking place, people are then baptized. 
Because they understand their sin, they confess their sin, and they trust in Jesus. And in that moment, they're dunked under the water in as a symbol of death under the water, life as they come out. And it's our union with Christ at that point that is symbolized in that baptism. Now, nothing really happens in baptism, okay? It's just a key component of discipleship. A baptism does not save you at all. Um, you think about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. One moment he's cursing Jesus, the next moment he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, right? And Jesus looks at me and goes, hey, I'll tell you the truth, you're going to be with me today in paradise. Today. Dude didn't get baptized. He went to heaven. So baptism doesn't save you, but here's what it is. I've already kind of said it. It's an outward symbol. It's an outward sign of your obedience that reflects like a mirror what's taking place inside of you. And it's an inward transformation that happens when you and I receive salvation. And listen, this is the pattern that we see all throughout the book of Acts. There are eight separate episodes of water baptism by submersion in the water for people who are actually old enough to profess a genuine faith in Christ, to confess their sin, Best their faith in Christ to, to save them from the, not only the presence, not only the power, but also the penalty of their sin. Uh, if you watch from my notes, you can find those instances and go study it for yourself. It's very clear. Um, you could actually say there's, remember, right, you could actually say there's nine, uh, but the ninth one is just a recounting of one of the earlier ones, the Apostle Paul talking about how he was baptized the moment he got saved. So all of these instances, when you look at baptism here in the scriptures, all of those instances throughout Acts, they are in obedience. They're in obedience to Jesus' command. There are some today who would say, no, nah, I don't really think we need to baptize people in water. And I would say you're being disobedient to what Jesus commands. Because it was his command in the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey my commands. It's a cyclical thing. Baptize them. Teach them to obey. Part of obedience is baptizing them and teaching them to obey, right? And part of baptism is the evangelization that takes place previous to that. So anyways, this day where 3,000 people are saved would have been an awesome day, agreed? It would have been an awesome day. It would have been scary. It would have been exciting. It probably would have been a little bit uncomfortable. All three. Second thing I notice in the text uh, that I think is pretty awesome is the disciples were truly committed. Right? They're truly committed. It's one of the most discouraging things, I think, in the modern church today is a lack of commitment among so-called believers. Uh, the list of things that compete with our commitment, and it's actually very lengthy when you think about it, right? You've got time constraints, you've got busyness, you've got family responsibilities, you've got vocational pursuits, your job, you've got hobbies, you name it. When it comes to commitment, the regular rhythms of the church, like studying your Bible, fellowship, eating food together, prayer, those things can often take the back seat or just become an add-on to an already hectic lifestyle, right? <coughs> I would also have to say <clears throat> that we are, we are really naive if we think that believers in the first century that we're reading about here didn't face similar, if not even worse, things that competed with their ability to consistently commit to the regular spiritual rhythms of being the church. You think about this, on top of the normal everyday pressures that we all deal with, that they dealt with too, uh, the early church also dealt with a heavy dose of the threat of death in the first few centuries after Pentecost. Any, anyone who practiced Christianity will wind up dead in a moment. Not to mention, they would have dealt with the, uh, the public ridicule as well as a dismissive attitude. The culture then believed that Christians were stupid, naive, and gullible because they worshipped a God that couldn't be seen. The pagans of that culture, in Greek culture, they could see their gods. They had statues. Good apologetics would, like Paul practiced, would, would show how those, those gods were false and fake and worthless and powerless. Um, but that was the culture they were in. Yeah, there's some similarities to us, isn't there? Except for we're not whiskey, risking life and limb. Although Andrew lost limbs, but it had nothing to do with... Uh... <laughs> I had to get it in there. <laughs> you don't know Andrew lost a couple fingers this week at work. 
Um, it had nothing to do with the gospel. <laughs> but we can, we'll make up stories anyways. <laughs> that was the culture they were in. Yet even in the midst of that cultural atmosphere, think about this. Luke tells us that the disciples were truly committed to the regular rhythms of the church family. Look at what he says. Verse 40. Somewhere, let me look. 42, that's where we're at. Verse 42. Look what he says about their commitment. He says they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now I want to make a quick note. The word fellowship and the breaking of bread, those are two separate things. Okay? The breaking of bread is the fellowship that we think of when we get together and we eat food at Joe and Eileen's house or, or over at Matt and Andrea's house. We just eat food and he have to go. That, that's, that's the breaking of bread. Uh, the word fellowship over here, that's not used for that same context. This word fellowship here, if you do the study on the original Greek language, it's talking about the fellowship of the gospel. That is something entirely different than eating food together. A different fellowship. But you'll notice that what he says is they're doing both. The fellowship of the gospel is when we get together as people who have trusted in Jesus and we share in the gospel together. We speak of the gospel together. We remind one another of the gospel together. We go and we share the gospel together in our communities with our friends. That's the fellowship of the gospel. Different than breaking bread. But breaking bread is important because it made it into the scriptures, right? They were the disciples, man, that they were willing to risk life and limb to be taught from the Bible, to share in the fellowship of the gospel, to eat food together and pray together. And there's even stories throughout church history. I'm doing a church history course right now um, from Pentecost to the Reformation. So for me, there's so much that I could put in here that I think is interesting. But um, in, the, in the first couple of centuries after the day of Pentecost, and there are stories of believers who actually competed with one another to be martyred for their religious practices. It was like Michael and I playing the Super Bowl on seeing who could go get tossed in the Coliseum to get eaten by lions. That was what was going on. These people were like, no, Michael, why don't you go over there so I can like, trick you so that I can go get martyred instead? Because there was a sense of like, wanting to die for Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of commitment level in the American church today? When you think about this kind of vision for what it means to be the church, if that, that's not something that like creates an awe inside of you, a sense of uncomfortableness, a sense of a little bit of fear, a little bit of excitement, right? If that vision doesn't excite you enough to consider some kind of lifestyle change, I, I, would, I would wonder why. Why? Why wouldn't you want to catch that vision and then have it transform you? Uh, begin to walk in repentance in a way that you begin to change your mind. Because, right? you know, preaching sermons, this is not just about showing up and, and being in a social gathering and hearing a pep talk. Right? This is about hearing from the Word of God and then being changed by it. Like, if you walk out of here and you're not changed, your mind is not changed in some way, you don't catch a grander vision for God and then subsequently catch a grander vision for what it means to be part of the church, either A, I haven't done my job, or I've done my job poorly and God's still using my poor job, and your heart is really hard. Somewhere in the midst of that. I'd ask the question, if this vision for the church doesn't, move you to some kind of lifestyle change, why is that true? For me, I, I got to tell you, after you know, you know, 10 and a half years of planting and pastoring here, I, I spent far too many years in the earlier years listening to the excuses of what I would call nominal believers who kind of parade around from one church to the next every couple of years and show no visible signs of true commitment and no visible signs of repentance and no fruit, but love to argue about things and really want to change things. It's really odd. I've learned over the years to refuse to allow those experiences to diminish the awesomeness of the Spirit at work in one or two believers at a time who are actually experiencing this kind of radical transformation as they're becoming disciples who are actually truly committed. Because when you experience that in people, when you experience that among a family where people are like, man, I'm excited about that. I want to I get more committed. 
That is a, a really good thing. And it's a very exciting thing. When someone moves from kind of the inconsistent, kind of half-hearted commitment that I, I really truly believe the Western church is rife with, I get super excited because I know what's happening is the Spirit of God is doing some kind of awesome work among his people. And I've gotten to experience that over the 10, now 10 and a half years of planting here. Watching people from going, going from absolutely completely dead in their faith, believing they were believers, but then finding out, I wasn't a believer, I just believed in the cultural Christianity that meant nothing. Also some who were just so vilely against Christianity at all, um, from going to those places to fully alive, fully committed, total lifestyle change, radical commitment to Jesus and the mission of a local church family, that, that's cool. That's awesome. Third thing I notice in the text is that wonders and signs are being done, right? Wonders and signs are being done. Verse 43, Luke tells us that awe came upon every soul, right? Many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Now, if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, never done that, I've challenged you. Go home this afternoon before the Super Bowl, read through the rest of the book of Acts. Take you about 15 minutes if you're a really good reader. Might take you about 30 to 45 minutes if you're a slower reader. Not a big deal. Just read through it. In fact, read through it once a week. I think it'd be really good. Read through the rest of the book of Acts. You'd see all sorts of awesome things being done through the apostles as the Spirit continues to help them witness to the power of Jesus, crucified, risen, returning. Think about Jesus for a minute when he was walking this earth. If you've read the Gospels, if you haven't, you should. Because when you read the Gospels, when Jesus is walking this earth, what happened? Lame people that couldn't walk got up and walked, right? Um, sick people were healed. The blind people were given new eyesight. Dead people were raised to new life. That's what was happening in the Gospels. That's what Jesus was doing. And in the book of Acts, all that we're seeing here is Jesus is continuing that very same ministry of miraculous wonders and signs. Why? Why? Uh, for the purpose of bringing people's attention to the power of God at work that they might surrender to him for salvation. That's the reason. It's not just so that people go, oh, wow, somebody's short leg grew out. Oh, wait, it was just a camera angle. It was false. Well, anyways, it's still a move of God. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen any of that kind of stuff. Wild and whack. In our day, there are many who try to duplicate that kind of ministry, call it the health, wealth, and prosperity ministries that you see on TV or the Internet. I grew up in it. Got a signed record at home to Joey from Kenneth Copeland. You don't know who he is? Look him up. He's gotten worse and worse over time. And people give millions of dollars to him, right? So you're going to have three jets. Nuts. So I honestly haven't found any of those ministries to be valid. Sat in those meetings, been there, watched it. I haven't found any of it to be valid, valid at all. They typically, those kinds of ministries typically operate outside the bounds of a faithful gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, number one. Secondly, they often promote lifestyles for their ministers that I think would make all of the apostles blush with embarrassment, since the apostles died for their faith and didn't get jets for it. Uh, I think the apostles would probably confront them in anger for exploiting the flock of God that has been purchased by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's what I think would happen. I think those ministries are a distraction uh, from the real, ongoing work of the Spirit of God among God's people. God still does wonders today. Every time somebody gets saved, it's a wonder, it's a sign, right? We just don't often get as excited about that, do we? Every time someone receives an answer to prayer, it's a wonder or a sign, isn't it? How much excitement do we have over that? Every time God protects someone, back to Andrew, he didn't cut off the whole hand, he only cut off three tips of his fingers. There's a wonder and a sign there. God's protection was present. How excited does that make us? Um, every time a, an addiction is overcome, every time a marriage is healed, every time a financial burden is lifted, every time a passage of Scripture is understood by a long-time believer, or a new believer. That's a wonder or a sign. Because none of those things would happen without a sovereign God working by the power of His Spirit in us. <coughs> and I'm convinced that all too often we are too enamored with TV, 
too enamored with the internet version, as false as it may be. We totally miss the real miraculous work that is taking place among us. I think there's a challenge here for us. Pay attention to the seemingly small things that actually are real. And reject the seemingly big things that are probably pretty fake. Fourth thing I noticed is that the church was united in their generosity. This is a big one. They were united in their generosity. You think of it, can you imagine a church? Think about it. Can you imagine being a part of a church where every one of its members, and again, this is not aimed at, say, visitors or regular attenders, members. <coughs> People who have signed on the line and said, This is my church home. I'm a member of it. I'm responsible for it. I'm, I'm held accountable to it. You think about where all of the members' material needs uh, were being cared for by the rest of the membership. Our jacked-up social system in our, uh, in, our, in our community would go away if the membership in a church practiced this one thing, united in generosity. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? If the church just radically upset our social system. Man. And that's exactly what was happening in the early church. They, they, they were united to generously care for one another. Look at what Luke says in verses 44 and 45. He says, all who believed were together. They were united. They had all things in common. They were united. <clears throat> they were literally a solid, united front in the face of evil, oppression, and extreme poverty. How? He says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to everyone, to all, as any had need. Now, you come back to that word witness, right? We're supposed to be witnesses of the Holy Spirit at work, witnesses to Jesus. I've witnessed this kind of thing take place. I've seen it time and time and time again. I've also witnessed the lack of this kind of uh, unity and generosity in the American church. Why? Because I think we are spoiled rotten. We are selfish, okay? We are really wealthy. Even the poorest among us is really wealthy compared to those who make less than a dollar a day and walk miles to get their water. Um, but I've had a front row seat watching many people practice this very thing, right? I've seen single dudes in our church caring financially for what I would call widowed-like women. And I'll leave it at that. I've witnessed that. Uh, I've seen wealthy businessmen, wealthy businesswomen, giving cars to families who didn't have one. I've seen them paying for formal education for children who could not otherwise get it. I've seen front porches loaded with groceries and gifts from members of our church to families in need. I've seen holiday meals purchased and given out. These are evidences of the Spirit at work among a group of people who are united in their generosity. Sadly, I've also seen the inconsistency where somebody gives 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there, 251 time a year. You know, I've seen that too. But once, I, once again, like I said earlier, I, I don't want to diminish the work that God's actually doing. I just want to focus on that. And, if, God, and if, you, if you're not in that place yet, and God hasn't moved on your heart to get there yet, that's between you and God. I don't know why you wouldn't want to buy into that vision. Because that, that's like God's vision for your life. So personally, you know, I... I I've watched this church, right? We, we grew from a, a small group of six adults, right? And, and for, I think, the first year, maybe a year and a half, it was only Christy and I's monthly financial giving uh, that was supposed to pay all the bills of our church. That was pretty crazy. Um, we did that. And, but today, here, ten and a half years later, right, we're at a place where this church, as a membership, uh, we're able to support three-quarters of my salary and, uh, and 100% of the rest of the bills of our church. That's a pretty big deal. Like, God started something out of nothing, really. And here we are today. And, and, and what happens, I think, when you look at the church in Acts, and you see this, when the church grows up like this and becomes this kind of people, um, unites in generosity, people notice it. And it's a really awesome thing to see. Right? The power of God at work. Look at the fifth thing. We've only got two more points, then we're done, okay? Look at the fifth thing I notice. The fifth thing I notice is in verses 46 to 47. Uh, the believers were gathering together daily. Now, for us as a church, we have roughly two to three gatherings per week, right? We got Sunday morning gatherings. Every other month, I guess, we have a members meeting. Uh, we have midweek Bible studies for men and women that happen every week. And then we have biweekly community groups for people to get together and eat food and laugh together, right? Those are our, that's our basic discipleship strategy. We don't do much more than that. It's just, it's, it's who we are. It's what we do. 
Now, the, if you were to look at our membership list and our, and our people list, and uh, you would look at the range of involvement in those gatherings, on some hand, it can be a little bit depressing, and in other ways, it can be really exciting too. Um, so th there's kind of a mixture across the board. I'll just say that I dream of a day, and I pray of a day, I pray every week for this, that there would be greater involvement from people who call this their church home. I do think 2020 jacked with us. I think COVID years jacked with us. Um, I don't think it's an excuse, but I think it happened. And I also think that we as a people have learned not to prioritize um, biblical spiritual disciplines above other things in our lives. Um, again, the biblical vision here is set before all of us, right? All you got to do is ask yourself as you're looking at this vision, if this vision is not compelling enough for you to make changes in your life to participate, why? Why doesn't it? Look at what Luke tells us. He says that, that the early church attended the temple together, right? He tells us that they broke bread in their homes, that they did this on a daily basis. This is like an everyday thing. Uh, it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all people. The Christians gathering daily, I think that that was a discipline then that was expected, it was enjoyed, and it was looked forward to. It wasn't done just because it was a duty. It was done because something radical had happened inside the hearts of the people who were participating. They'd gotten saved. They'd witnessed the resurrection. They'd witnessed the crucifixion. They witnessed the ascension to heaven. They heard the promise from Jesus' own lips, I'm coming back, y'all. And they were excited. They were in awe of God over this, right? Vision is simple. When you look at this passage, the vision is this. The members of the early church, they're together daily. They're a combination of large group gatherings at the temple, small group gatherings in homes. And in those gatherings, what did they do? I think they no doubt continue to practice the disciplines that we saw earlier. Study the Bible, sharing in the gospel, eating food, praying. And then what else? They also praised God when they were together. And it says that their gatherings were gaining favor among everyone they met. When you think about well, this is awesome, right? This is amazing. It's amazing because you don't see this in Western culture anymore. You don't see it in the culture that you see in the East. Last thing I notice is that new believers uh, were becoming members, right? New believers are becoming members. And this was happening often, it seems like, when you read the text. He tells us in the last part of verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, what, what Luke does not tell us is that hordes of people were pouring through the doors to see the smoke show. He tells us that the new believers were becoming members of the church as God did what? God added to their number day by day. And so the Lord did the adding, but I think that you and I should rest assured that the members of the church did the evangelizing and the discipling. This was not primarily the work of the apostles or the pastors, this was an entire church membership project. The members of the church in that day, with God at the helm of the ship, with the power of the, of the presence of the Holy Spirit like an engine moving it forward, <coughs> that's where the work was taking place. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how awesome that would be? I mean, think about it this way, okay? Let's shift gears for a minute. You, some of you heard me say this before. Um, imagine the excitement we would all experience, if every one of us, I'm going to say there's probably 40, 45 of us in the room. That might be counting a little high. Um, that's how you do church numbers, right? You just you count a little high. Let's say there's 40 of us in the room. Um, and let's say that each one of you today, all of you were actually believers, right? And that you actually left here today, and every one of you 40, you went and shared the gospel, the simple gospel that I, I started us out with, you went and you shared that with somebody this week. And let's just say that God blessed your obedience and that person got saved. Where would that person go to church? They have a relational connection to you. So hopefully they would come to church with you because you would then take the responsibility of discipling that person. You would take the responsibility of baptizing them in a few weeks maybe, right? So you would share the gospel with them. By God's grace, they would get saved and they would say yes. And then next week, instead of 40, there'd be 80. I don't care how many people are in a room. 
What I do care about, though, is believers who share the gospel and are obedient to the word, right? What if that happened? What if you took the responsibility to share the gospel, they get saved, and then you took the responsibility to continue teaching them the Bible so that you could then baptize them, and then when they got baptized, you helped baptize that person, and then from that point forward, you continued to read the Bible with them every week. It's not about notches on your belt. It's not about, I baptize more people than that person. Because Paul rebukes people for thinking that way. What if? Can you imagine that? I mean, does that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable to think about it? Maybe make you feel a little bit afraid? Like, oh, I, don't, I don't even know how, how would I even share the gospel. I, don't know. I, my pa- I just invite them to church. My pastor does the rest of the work. Right? Not that it's bad that you need to invite people to church, for sure. And some may be saying, well, my pastor doesn't offer enough classes to teach me how to do that. I got, a, I got like 50,000 books downstairs. I'll give you one. Okay? <laughs> do your work. <laughs> I'll do it with you. I'd be happy to. I can help you figure out how to share the gospel. I can help you figure out how to disciple people. I love those calls. <laughs> those calls are a lot better than the calls that most pastors get. <laughs> but you got to own that, right? Like, you have to feel the responsibility of that. The question is, if you don't feel the responsibility of that, don't feel the excitement for that, why don't you? And how long would you want to live a mediocre Christianity where you just come sit in a chair and just listen to someone talk? Once or twice a month. Four times a month if you're a really good Christian. Get me? No such thing. Does sound scary, sounds a little intimidating, doesn't it? Uh, but I would argue that if you feel a sense of fear, if you feel a little bit of sense of guilt, <laughs> that's exactly where you need to be. I think where you need to be as we come down to the end of the sermon. When you step back, I'm going to try to conclude and wrap this up. When you step back and you look at the broad overview of everything we've learned, right? You think about the awesome description of the early church here. You think about all the ways, all the awesome ways that Luke describes it, right? 3,000 people getting saved. The church is getting full of disciples who are committed to the regular spiritual rhythms of the church. You got wonders and signs that are getting done. You got the church being united in generosity. You got believers gathering together daily. Now you have new believers becoming members of the church because the current members of the church are doing their thing. Walking in obedience to God. When you think about how awesome it would be to be part of a church like that, you ever say that? Wow, how awesome it would be to be part of a church like that. You kind of have to ask, like, stop asking that question like it's about everybody else. Ask it about you. Like, what stops you from being the church like that? What stops you from being a member like that? What stops you from being like the early believers? At the end of the day, the church is not a building, right? It's a people. We, we should know that. So what stops people like you and I from being an awesome church like this? Here's what I think the answer is. If I haven't gotten it across, I want to be really straight. I think the answer, and it's according to one scholar that I got noted in my notes so you can look it up, right? His answer is this. The reason that the church is not awesome like this is because you and I have lost our awe for God. That's what it comes down to. Verse 43 says, awe came upon every soul. Now you know that, that Luke can't be referring to awe coming upon every soul simply because of all the things the church was doing. It wasn't just because, wow, look at this awesome church, I'm awed. If that was true, then the church itself would become God. You follow me? The only thing that could have awed those early believers was God himself. All of the things that describe the early church would, would never describe us if we don't have a robust, awesome, reverent fear of God. So the question is, actually, how is your awe of God lately? If you're struggling to catch the vision for being a believer like this, being part of a church like this, being a church like this, the reason you're struggling to is that you've lost your awe of God. Oftentimes, we're awed by the preacher. We're awed by the music. We're in awe of the friendships or the food at the gathering. We're not awed by God. We're not awed by the fact that he rescued us. And therefore, we're not motivated to participate 
in the absolutely normal baseline disciplines of being a church, and therefore you know what happens? The church is no longer awesome. There will not be an awesome church until we as believers get an awe for God. I want you to try to, I want to try to help you feel this, okay? So again, I've been, I've been alluding to the fact that I think awesome, awe means a little bit of fear. It means a little bit of excitement, right? It means a little bit of uncomfortableness. So, if the back doors of that church flew open right now, and about 25 hell's angels with their patches on came stomping down that aisle looking angry, and they sat right down in this front seat, how would you feel? I can feel it. And I know those guys, right? Wouldn't you be a little uncomfortable? Wouldn't there be a little bit of a nervous excitement in you? Wouldn't there be a little bit of fear? Or maybe, if that doesn't do it for you, uh, how would you feel if you knew that there was armed militia, right? They're, they're prowling around Hastings right now. They're looking for Christians to kill as soon as we walk out those doors. Would you stay home instead and watch the gathering on TV, on the internet? Uh, maybe, you'd, maybe you'd find a different online preacher to watch because the production is better somewhere else. Because our production is not that good because we don't have a lot of money. That fear, that uncomfortable feeling in either of those scenarios, I think it pales in comparison to the awesome fear that you would experience if you were at the foot of the cross. If you were at the foot of the cross where Jesus was being crucified, if you could hear him scream in agony because of your sin, if you watched them beat him with that whip, if you watched the shame as he hung totally naked on that cross. And naked does not mean covered with a loincloth. If you experience that, you'd want to be a witness of that. If you experience the next three days of horror and depression and sadness, if you've ever lost somebody and had someone die, you know the sadness of death of, of somebody close to you. But to watch them die in that horrific way, the traumatizing that takes place, if you were to struggle with that for three days and then go down to be close to his grave, like many of us do, we go to the graves of those whom we've lost. My anniversary of my mom's death was last week, right? Nine years ago. I remember that morning, the evenings before, the weeks and the months that led up to it. I remember walking into that, that room and seeing her dead body for the first time. It marked me. You imagine going to the tomb that day expecting to see Jesus and what you find is his body is gone and you don't know where he's at and then somebody tells you he's alive. Oh, he's alive. What kind of an emotional impact would that have on you? Now imagine you spend the next 40, 50 days with him and imagine even before that he comes walking right through that wall right he did that it's crazy and then you spend 40 or 50 days with him he's like yo I'm out of here by the way you keep doing what you saw me do and don't stop and I'm going to give you the spirit so that you can keep doing it what would you do uh, I think I'm going to go get too busy for all that Jeez, I'm going to like watch some stories about you on TV that will give me a good spiritual jacked up juice no you wouldn't do that you wouldn't bring dishonor to the name of your dead loved one who now was resurrected and ascended to heaven and by the way said, yo, I'm coming back someday. And this isn't just about fire insurance. This is about me establishing my kingdom as a king on this earth through you. That's awesome. This should make you feel uncomfortable. It should make you feel excited. And it should give you a little bit of fear. And that feeling should change your mind. And not just your mind, but your heart. And then your life should prove it. And you and I would become greater witnesses to Jesus we claim to worship every Sunday and throughout the week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would take the images, the feelings that we now have, the word that we've now heard, 
used over the next few moments to do a work of change inside of us. Lead us to the foot of a bloody cross. Watch that blood roll down that cross. Plant us in the doorway of that empty tomb as we wrestle with the fact that you are alive. That that promise of new life, resurrected life, is for all who would trust in you. Help us, Father, to look forward <coughs> not just to fire insurance, not going to hell, but to look forward to being a part your family for the rest of our lives in heaven, ruling and reigning with you. Your presence, your good Father. Especially you come and minister to us by the power of your spirit as we close. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.